Okay, well, um, let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever taken advice from someone? And the answer, of course, is yes. You know, it could be about your health, could be about what to study, could be about your career, could be about how to invest your money. Okay, but did you take that advice? And the answer is, yeah, sometimes. Okay, so what made you follow it? Well, probably the you know, mixture of things, isn't it? But probably the, um, the person who you asked advice for, you trusted them. The advice sounded good and wise, but also because what they said wasn't, they offered you an outcome that if you take this advice, this will happen. And you look at that and you go, yeah, I want that. That's the outcome I want, so I'll follow the advice. Okay, but have you ever taken advice and regretted it later? M maybe. Maybe you think, you know, why did I listen to that? And of course, how much you regret it later depends on how much it has negatively impacted your life. Okay, but what if taking the wrong advice could ruin the whole course of your life? Not just maybe not just damage your health, maybe not just damage your investments, or you know, maybe not just impact who you date, but it ruins everything about you. You would want to be warned about that kind of advice, wouldn't you? You would want to be able to be in a position where you spot it and you don't take it. And that is why, if you think about it, that is why Peter is spending virtually a third of this, his second letter, taking aim at people whom he calls false teachers. Spiritual leaders who he calls false teachers. Because, I mean, what, what is a spiritual leader... What is a spiritual teacher, if you like, if they're not someone who's offering advice? Offering advice on how you should live your life. Advice with eternal implications. Okay, so what if that advice is wrong? What if they're telling you uh, to, to live your life in a certain way, do certain things, prioritize certain things or whatever, and they're wrong? And what if for us, the advice, the false advice that these guys were receiving from these false teachers, what if that advice ironically sounds strangely similar to what the advice you get today from any number of books you might read or podcasts you might uh, listen to or blogs you might read or media you might consume? You'd want to be warned about that kind of advice, wouldn't you? which is what Peter does. Okay, so we're going to look at three things. The allure of freedom, the slavery of freedom, and the one who gives true freedom. Okay, firstly then, the allure of freedom. Look at verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. I don't know if you uh, know it, but in his uh, novel, David Copperfield, Charles Dickens gives us, I think, one of the great fun characters of English literature, which is Mr. Micawber. And um, Mr. Micawber, with his young family and his long-suffering wife, they live in virtual poverty, certainly in penury, with the debt collectors forever knocking at the door. And his family lurches from one disaster to another because of his bad decisions. 
Okay, and yet, if you listen to Micawber, he's, he, he's always on the cusp of making some financial or career breakthrough. Something good is it's always just around the corner. And he dresses it all in this incredible flowery language. He is full of hot air. And yet it's impossible not to love him. He's just this lovable character. Not so these false teachers. Because they are also full of hot air, Peter says. They are also making big claims for themselves. But they're anything but lovable. And yet there is something attractive about them. There's something appealing about them. There's something about them that draws people in. You know, as Rob pointed out last week, it's their confidence. It's their assertiveness. They sound like they know what they are talking about. They speak, Peter says, loud boasts of folly. Now, does that sound familiar? Because whether it's these guys in first century Asia, Asia Minor, or today's politicians or podcast hosts, there is something about assertive confidence that can draw us in, that we find attractive, that, that makes us trust, that makes us want to believe in this person. Especially, Peter says, if you're not well grounded, if you are, verse 18, barely escaping from those who live in error. So whether you live in first century pagan culture or 21st century increasing pagan culture, the way leaders can present themselves can appeal, attracts you. Because when life seems uncertain, everything is up in the air and changing. Someone who appears to be certain, someone who's assertive, they can be magnetic. Okay, but it's not just their style, but their content. Okay, content, their content can draw you in. Content that, that makes you want it, like a, like a fisherman using bait. These guys, Peter says, verse 18, entice by sensual passions of the flesh. And as we've seen in the um, uh, last couple of Sundays, uh, Peter's thinking about sex. Because, you know, as we've seen, these false teachers are saying that, look, you don't need to worry about the judgment to come. There's no final judgment coming like, like Quentin prayed earlier. You don't need to worry about that. God's not going to judge anybody. So you can get into bed with whoever you want to. You can sleep, you can have sex with who, whoever you want. It doesn't matter. You're not going to have to give an account for that. So he's got sex in mind. But if you think about it, sensual passions is more than just sex, isn't it? And maybe especially for you. Okay, this, this might, you know, sex, the sex thing may, this may not be an issue for you. But think what sensual passions are. It's to be passionate. It is to want. It is to desire what your senses want, what makes you feel good, what leaves you feeling fulfilled. And you're passionate about that. You, you really want that. You want it too much. And rather than sex, that, for you, that could be romance. Okay, if you're single, it could be that sense of, I, I want somebody to love me. I want that special person. I want to feel in love. Or it might be having that next great experience, your travel or culture. And you get, a, you get a kick from that. And not just from that experience, but 
also from the ability to broadcast that to others so that others can see that you're having that good time. Or for you, it may be, it may be good food or wine. And uh, it should just be a meal, but it's taking on different proportions for you. Or it could be the uh, passions or anger that is stirred by politics. And you, know, you watch stuff, you, you listen to stuff, and you have that feel-good sense inside you when somebody else is getting owned, when somebody else is getting burned. Or rather than a, rather than a feel-good feeling inside you, it could be an unpleasant feeling. It could be that inner stab, that unpleasant feeling you experience when you see someone else's social media post. And it's not necessarily the experience that they're having or the stuff that they have that you want it's their life man I wish my life was like that and you want that kind of a life the life they seem to be living and Peter says we can want those things too much we can be enticed by them so that when someone comes along and says yeah and here's how you can get it if you follow my advice, if you do this stuff, you can have that outcome in your life. We can listen to them. And the pursuit of those things begins to shape our lives. Okay, but the message coming from these false teachers had another element. Verse 19. They promise freedom. Freedom from constraint. Whether that's about how you spend your money or what you wear or how much you eat and drink, or who you have sex with, or how much you attack someone in politics. When there is no judgment to come, there's no need to listen to anyone telling you, you can't, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't behave like that. Because you can do and be whatever and whoever you want to do and be. And today, you know, with extreme individualism and freedom, you can even be free to pick your own gender. But again, there's something enticing about that, isn't there? There is something enticing about that kind of freedom, especially when it's dressed up in sort of spiritual language. This is good for you. Because who doesn't want good in their lives? Who doesn't want to be free? Well, second point. The slavery of freedom. Okay, imagine that you are, as some of you will be in a few hours, imagine you are running a long-distance race. And you are however many kilometers in, and you are getting thirsty, and you need a drink. And up ahead, you see one of these water stations with people holding out cups to drink from. And so you run over there, you grab one, and it's empty. So you, so you grab another one. And that's also empty. And you grab another, and they're all empty. What would you think? Well, look at verse 17. Peter says these false teachers are waterless springs. Okay, like a runner in a race, like a traveler in a desert in need of a drink. False teachers then and now promise you water, holding this cup out to you, something that will satisfy you on the inside, that will meet your inner desires but in reality Peter says they leave you parched and thirsty they tell you 
This is the way to the good life that you are looking for, for the love, for the satisfaction, for the pleasure, for the significance, for the meaning that you are after. And it's a dead end. Like an empty well, you lower your bucket in the well, but you bring it up and it's empty. Now, ironically, of course, that is nothing new, not even in Peter's day. You know, 600 years before Peter wrote this, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and said, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, the people of ancient Judah thought that turning their backs on God worshipping other stuff, other gods, that that would satisfy. And it was the opposite. And that's, and that's because it's not just that that kind of thinking and teaching fails to deliver, which it does, it's that it also stands in the way of what will do it for you. Verse 17, they are mists driven by a storm, now, one of our uh, daughters was uh, recently on holiday and visited one of those incredible, you know, mountain, lake, Instagram postable locations, except a storm blew in and with it the fog and the fog came down. And what should have been a photo of her looking all sort of glammy with this amazing view behind turns into her in a raincoat with this gray wall of fog behind her, obscuring the view. And that is what false teachers and false views on life and, and bad advice do, Peter says. They tell you, pursue freedom, be yourself, live how you want to live, live for what makes you feel good and your life is gonna be lived in glorious technicolor. And in reality, it is a fog that obscures the truth that will really give you color, that will really give you life. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They're, they're enslaved to an inner decay. Okay, I want you to think about how that might work. You see, firstly, when you think that your personal freedom should be the thing that guides your life, you inevitably become more self-focused. Just inevitably, you are going to become more self-centered. As Augustine put it, you become curved in on yourself. You become enslaved to self. And that doesn't deliver you a great life. What it delivers you is increasing isolation and loneliness. Because what a true, what a, what a really good and true and deep relationships built on, on give and take, on giving up some of your freedoms. And so rather than delivering you a great life, it cuts you off from that. It cuts you off from community. In her recent song, Flowers, Miley Cyrus, just so that you know I have heard of Miley Cyrus. Okay, she sings about the breakup of a relationship. I can buy myself flowers, 
write my name in the sand, talk to myself for hours, say things you don't understand. I can take myself dancing and I can hold my own hand, yet I can love me better than you can. That's a song for our age. Okay, the message is, I don't need you. I can love myself. And self-love beats all other loves. Except it doesn't, does it? Because all the data regarding the mental health of those who have been raised in a culture of extreme individualism and total freedom says Peter is absolutely right. It is a waterless spring. It promises you freedom, but what you actually get is depression. As one American sociologist writes, the lone self is a weak foundation for robust mental health. Individualism and freedom feel good when you are young, but empty when you are older. So you become enslaved to yourself with very negative consequences. But secondly, you can become enslaved to the, to the sensual passions, to the things that you really want, the stuff that you think you need, or that life that the other person is having, and, and that you need to feel good about yourself. And, and you can't be happy without this. It nags away at you. And so it begins to control you. You think you're free to pursue this stuff, but you end up enslaved by it. It's why Peter writes, verse 19 again, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. He's using a metaphor of, the, of an army invading somebody else's land. And if a conquering army enslaved the people that it conquered, so too can those things that we want so much, that we want too much, and we feel an inner compulsion to feed the habit, to spend more, to see more, to live more. And our self-control, our defenses are overwhelmed. It's why Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave of sin. Because whether it's a bad thing or a good thing that becomes a demanding thing, we can be mastered by this stuff. Okay, so we can be slaves to ourselves, we can be slaves to sensual passions, the stuff that we really want. But there's also a sense in which we can be enslaved to our culture. Think about that. Okay, when, you, when the culture, as it is now, repeatedly tells you that you are free to be yourself. You are free to go your own way. If you follow that advice, you've never been more conforming. It's ironic, isn't it? You have never been more mastered by your culture than when you are following the cultural line that you are free. You're an individual. You can be yourself. And when you buy into that, you're owned by it. And I mean owned literally, because when as, as happened, big business or the advertiser, and I'm not being anti-capitalist, okay, but when, when big business and the advertising industry gets on the bandwagon and you can express yourself, your identity, your individual self by the brands you wear or the products you own, 
then as one writer has said, be yourself in reality becomes by yourself. Purchase yourself. You can purchase this identity. So they promise you freedom, but in reality you are being owned. Owned by culture, owned by big business, owned by advertising. And so what C.S. Lewis wrote is as true for the false teachers in Peter's day as our own. The power of man to make himself what he pleases means the power of some men to make other men what they please. Okay, they promise you freedom, but you end up enslaved to yourself, to your passions, and to culture. That is not a great situation to be in, Peter says. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And the question is, is, is Peter talking about the false teachers, people giving the advice, or the people listening to the advice? And the answer is yes. Okay, probably both. Because what does he mean that their last state is worse than the first? Okay, we'll go back to verse 17. And there Peter has definitely got the false teachers in mind. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Now, when you want to go to a popular restaurant, what do you do? You phone up beforehand, don't you? You reserve a table. Because it's, it's reassuring to know that you have got seats reserved. If that is good, what could be worse than having seats reserved in hell? And Peter is saying that's exactly the case for those who obscure the truth from others. They wanted and sold others a freedom from God and from the light of his goodness. So they're going to get it. They're going to get darkness. As John Calvin wrote, in place of the momentary darkness which they now cast, there is prepared for them a much thicker and eternal one. Their last state would be worse than the first. Okay, but when he gets to verse 21, Peter's probably referring to those who are taken in by the false teachers, who listen to them. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And the them that he's talking about, the people he's talking about there, are those in verse 20 who, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, are once again entangled in them and overcome. Okay, so I want you to imagine someone who seems to be on the verge of becoming a Christian. Come, they're coming to faith in Christ. Or they already say that they are a Christian, but they start listening to this other stuff, whether it's podcasts or books that they read or, or their friends or whatever. And they start listening to stuff about, no, no, this is how you should live life. Or you should be free. Don't let, don't let Christianity, this church stuff, constrict and constrain you. And they start saying, you know what? I, I think Christianity is too narrow. I, I, I want to be free to decide for myself how I live. 
And Peter is saying they are in a worse situation than before because their heart has become harder. It's as if they've been inoculated. It's now they think Christianity, been there, done that, didn't work for me. And Peter says, they're like someone who is held hostage by the enemy, who the special forces go in and try and rescue. But on their way out, as the, you know, as the soldiers, as the rescuers are trying to get them into the helicopter, the, the captive, the person who was held captive says, you know what? I don't, I don't think I'm going to come home. I think I'm going to, I quite like my captives. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to stay put. And they walk back. And the person who does that, Peter says, with their sin or their over-desires is worse off than before. Because now there's little chance of them ever wanting to come to Christ and be truly free. I'll tell you a story. Well, it's not a story. It's true. Um, I once knew a guy who gave every appearance of being a Christian. But his lack of a girlfriend increasingly bothered him. So he started using a dating app. Swipe right, swipe left. And one night he hooked up with someone. And it was as if his eyes had been opened to him. And I sat down with him afterwards. It was as if he had had this revelation. And he knew, he knew enough about, he knew enough about Christianity to know that he couldn't have Christianity and be having sex with his girlfriend or whoever his latest date was. So he chose sex. And within days, or certainly within weeks, his faith had all but disappeared. Desire, freedom, entangled and overcome. And no amount of reasoning could change his mind. And Peter is saying, don't let that happen to you. Whatever that might look like for you, don't let that happen to you. You see, notice how in verse 21, he calls the Christian faith the way of righteousness. And in verse 2, he's already called it the way of truth. And in verse 15, he calls it the right way. Christianity is a path to walk on. So in all the advice that you are getting, in all the advice that you are listening, on how, listening to on how you should live your life, Peter is saying, watch your steps. You might think that your freedom to use your money however you want or to watch whatever you want to watch or to wear whatever you want to wear or to date whoever you want to date, you might think that freedom, that, that those things are minor things. But Jesus says the path is narrow. And each step is inevitably followed by another step. So make sure those steps aren't taking you off the path, Peter says. And to bring that home, he uses two images, verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Interesting, isn't it? To the person involved, what they really, really want, that romantic relationship, that girlfriend or that boyfriend or that next expensive trip or that other person's life, to them, it seemed, that seems like a beautiful thing. 
And Peter says, in comparison to Christ, when that is chosen instead of Christ, it's like vomit. It's like mud. And God has something much better in store for you than vomit and mud. Okay, you see, you could hear all of this stuff about advice givers and spiritual leaders and teachers and their empty promises. And the truth is, we can get a bit cynical, can't we? You can think everyone's exactly the same, whether it's political or cultural or religious. All leaders ever do is let you down. Listen, that is not an argument for having no leaders. It's an argument for having the only one who won't let you down. Last point then, the one who gives true freedom. Okay, look at verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Okay, so true freedom doesn't come from the pursuit of total freedom, living just how you want to live. True freedom, Peter says, comes with knowledge, but not the kind of life hacks that you might get from the latest book or podcast but through relational knowledge, through knowing Christ. Because when you know him, you will love him. And you will love him more than this other stuff that is angling for your heart. You see, Peter describes these false teachers as speaking loud boasts of folly. It's the danger of every influencer, isn't it? Danger of every advice giver, but not Christ. They, Peter says, are full of empty words. But in the opening of his gospel, John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And these guys, just like today, are full of themselves. They make much of themselves. But Isaiah says of Jesus that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And he didn't. And even at, a tri- even at his trial, when he was given the opportunity to talk about himself and promote himself and defend and save himself, Isaiah says, he opened not his mouth. So whether in the first century or 21st century, there are always going to be those who make empty boasts and empty promises. But Christ emptied himself in his birth, in his life, and in his death so that we might be filled. They speak empty words. Christ empties himself so that we can be filled. You see, when Peter describes these teachers as waterless springs, verse 17, he is saying that what they offer and advise you will never truly satisfy you. But Jesus came saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And to a woman, the woman at the well, who has gone through one relationship after another, trying to quench her inner thirst for love, he says, but whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Do you know, that is why at the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst. 
Is he physically thirsty? Sure. But there's something more going on. He is experiencing the inner emptiness of our sin. He's parched because we are. But he goes through that so that our thirst for love and significance and forgiveness might be forever satisfied in him. And in verse 17, Peter calls these false teachers mists driven by a storm. They obscure the light. But at the cross, who went through the darkness? Christ does. As he takes all of our sin and all of our wrong desires upon himself, it's him, the light of the world, who is plunged into darkness as a storm of God's wrath rolls over him. Why? So that we might forever live in his light. And in verse 19, Peter says these teachers promise freedom when all along they are enslaved to self and sin. But Jesus says of himself, but if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And yet he's the one whose freedom was curtailed in his arrest, in his trial and at the cross. And at the cross, he dies the death of the slave to set us free from slavery to sin and self and guilt and fear. And when you know that, when you increasingly know his love for you like that, when you know that he is your saviour, as Peter says, you will increasingly love him more than your sensual passions. But you also need to know him as your Lord, Peter says. Because something's always going to be your Lord, isn't it? And it is now. Something's always going to be your Lord. Something is always going to be your master. And that is either going to be corruption or Christ. So what would you rather be mastered by? You've got a choice. You can be mastered by Christ or corruption. You can either be mastered by what ultimately robs you of happiness. You can be mastered by culture. You can be mastered by big business that owns you. Or you can be mastered by the son of God who has sold for you. You can be mastered by one who uses you or by the one who loves you so much he died for you. Well, Peter knows the choice he's made, because if you go right back to the first verse of the book, he opens the letter by calling himself Simon Peter, a servant, literally a slave of Jesus Christ. You're always going to be the slave of one master or another. So Peter says, choose the one who sets you free. So this week... I want you to consider taking an audit. Consider taking an audit of the stuff you read, that you listen to, and that you watch. And ask yourself, what is this doing to my heart? Is it feeding wrong desires and passions? Is it getting me to buy into the false promise of individual freedom? Or is it shaping me to become more like Christ? And if it's not doing the latter, cut it off. Then I would say commit to limiting your freedom. Limit your freedom, and I know I'm talking to the choir in some way, but limit your freedom every Sunday by coming to church. 
Limit your freedom every week by attending home group or Bible study. Because that, individualism robs you. But community is the antidote to that loneliness that they offer you. And then daily, limit your freedom by allowing Christ to shape you every day through prayer and Bible reading and immerse yourself in the good news of all that Jesus is and all that he has done for you. Because whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Let's pray.